Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. True high-speed rail service has been a dream in the northeastern U.S. for years. I take the train all the time, and um, that's exciting to me because it will be faster. Anything that's faster is always better. But what if you live in a town that a new rail line is built through without any stop for you? From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We'll continue our coverage of high-speed rail plans along the nation's busiest corridor. And we'll hear from wastewater treatment plants miles from Long Island Sound and what new clean water regulations might mean for them. Municipalities are being forced to accommodate nitrogen, and it's on our shoulders, and it's costing a lot of money. We'll also ask, is hydropower really clean energy? Hydropower has a long and fraught history with environmentalists because it does have very serious local impacts on, on the natural environment. And the editor of Yankee Magazine tells us a secret to covering New England. They want to be transported. They want to be taken to a place of their, of their sweet imaginings. We'll take you there next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We're going to start this week with the promise of renewable energy and the current realities. In Maine, wind energy has had a decade of rapid growth, but now it's hit the doldrums. As Fred Bever reports, there's no new big wind projects likely to go through anytime soon, and it could cost billions to unlock enough of the state's wind resource, the best in the region, to serve southern New England's thirst for renewable power. Almost every year since 2007, a new wind energy plantation has gone into service in Maine. Last December, New England's biggest yet joined the mix, spinning 56 turbines from the hills of the Bingham region, about 30 miles east of the Sugarloaf Ski Resort as the crow flies. Today, the blades in Bingham turn a slow waltz atop a series of white 300-foot pylons that string out across the misty ridgelines. It's mostly fiberglass. They have a spire that runs down through the middle as a, the main beam support. But, uh, yeah, they just, they just float on the wind. Stacy Fitz manages the Bingham Wind Plantation and other assets held by Novatis, a J.P. Morgan affiliate that's one of many investors to pick up the pieces after the nation's biggest renewable energy company, Sun Edison, went bankrupt last year. Above us, as the turbines transform wind energy into electrons, I can hear it in my headphones. I'm getting some really interesting interference here. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. It could be electrical. Yeah. Wind turbines have proliferated because they serve public policies that require renewable generation in the mix. And developers have focused on Maine because it's the windiest part of New England. But Maine already has more renewable energy than it needs, so this renewable energy, it's serving contracts with customers in Massachusetts and Vermont. This is a commodity, just like our forest products industry or some of the other native industries to Maine. Maine has something that's marketable and to be able to take advantage of it in a way that's clean, it's benefiting me. Actually, for the first time in a decade, the product 
isn't so marketable. There doesn't seem to be as wide an appetite for some of these new wind farms in northern New England that there was even just a few years ago. Uh, and, and I'm not sure if that's going to change anytime soon. Dan Dolan is executive director of the New England Power Generators Association. Dolan and many other industry players note that Maine wind energy projects were shut out last fall when they bid on a big southern New England clean energy power contract. Solar and wind projects closer to the demand centers were the real winners. Being close to demand matters because as of now, there's no more room on Maine's transmission system to bring new wind power from remote locations to market. It was not designed with the purpose of integrating large quantities of generation. Al McBride is director of transmission strategy for the region's grid system operator, ISO New England. He says Maine's part of the system was originally constructed to handle local electricity usage and to connect Maine with New Hampshire and New Brunswick. But the system now has added more than 750 megawatts of wind-generated electric capacity in Maine over the last decade. Adding much more, McBride says, would be like crowding an unpaved carriage road with tandem trailer trucks. And there's no remaining headroom on the system. McBride's job includes analyzing what kind of infrastructure investments would add enough of that headroom to allow the safe and reliable addition of new generation. He and ISO New England are analyzing possible solutions and costs now, Some other groups preliminarily estimate the cost of bringing significant new wind energy from Maine to southern New England at $2 billion and upwards, depending on assumptions about the region's demand over the next 8 to 12 years. The costliness of the added headroom is at least part of why a northern Maine project twice the size of the one I just visited in western Maine recently put construction on hold, forcing the abandonment of a contract with two Connecticut utilities. It's part of why... After years of juggling multiple applications for new wind plantations, Maine land use regulators are now handling exactly none. So while developers consider their next moves, opponents of industrial wind in Maine are taking a tentative breath. It's, a, it's been a, basically a good combination to press pause. Chris O'Neill is a consultant who represents a group called Friends of Maine's Mountains. But there's still an interest by wind developers to, to sink steel in the ground. O'Neill says pressure is on for new wind generators to qualify for a federal tax credit that ends soon. And there's another hurry-up that's got wind skeptics on alert. A recent Massachusetts RFP seeking enough renewable energy to serve hundreds of thousands of Bay State homes. Industry players in Maine plan to bid and they are looking to cut costs by integrating clusters of wind and transmission projects and, they hope, become competitive again for southern New England's renewable energy customers. That's Fred Bever from Maine Public Radio reporting. Now, just one state over in New Hampshire, there's another big project that's trying to tap into southern New England's appetite for energy. It's called Northern Pass, and it's a controversial transmission project aimed at getting power from Quebec. Nancy West of the New Hampshire Center for Public Interest Journalism has been covering the issue, and she joins us now. Nancy, first of all, welcome to the show, and tell us, what is Northern Pass? This project is 192 miles, and it would import hydroelectricity from Hydro-Quebec, and it would snake through New Hampshire 192 miles, starting in Pittsburgh at the northernmost, through Concord and over east to Deerfield. 
So it really impacts many towns. There's about 31 towns that are directly impacted. And what do those impacts look like? Are we talking about uh, big transmission wires running overhead? What do they look like? Well, um, only 60 miles of the 192 miles will be buried, and the rest will be overhead lines. Now, Northern Pass is going to have to build much taller structures to be able to bring the high-voltage DC power through to Franklin and then AC power the rest of the way. So these will be much taller towers. When um, opponents gathered around the State House a month ago, they brought a big orange balloon to give some perspective to how tall the towers will have to be. You know, some as high as 135 feet or even a little bit taller. The people who are coming out in opposition are saying that this project is going to cut through pristine woodlands. What else are they saying? What are the big concerns about uh, this project? Well, the North Country, northern New Hampshire, um, has been really hard hit in the last couple of decades as manufacturing has left and the paper mills have closed. They say all they've really got left is the tourism industry and that creating these huge new power lines, cutting swaths through really beautiful um, visual tourist attractions is, is going to be very harmful. And there's been a little bit of concern voiced about the potential hazards of AC power lines, especially the high-voltage power lines, um, for people who live very close to the power lines. What do we know about those potential health impacts? Well, like everything else in Northern Pass, there are two distinct voices. The people who testified at the early adjudicatory proceedings for Northern Pass say there is no threat to health or safety. Now, there has been more research done in recent years that shows there is a link to different types of cancers and illnesses that um, has been voiced by experts all over the country. What happens next? We've already had nine full-day sessions of adjudicative hearings in front of the New Hampshire Site Evaluation Committee. That's the group that will decide whether to approve or deny in the state um, Northern Pass's proposal. Northern Pass will also have to get a federal approval because it's going across international borders. And what will happen next here in New Hampshire is the continuation of these adjudicatory proceedings. By September 30th, there has to be a decision made by the Site Evaluation Committee whether or not Northern Pass can proceed. One of the things that the Northern Pass has to prove is that it's in the public's interest. They have 18 more hearings to in which to tell their story. Nancy West, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You can find more of Nancy's reporting at indepthnh.org. We wondered how Northern Pass fits into the overall energy grid in New England, and it can be a pretty complex question to answer. So we called up Sam Evans-Brown, who loves this stuff. He's the host of the NHPR podcast, Outside In. It's a show about the natural world and how we use it. Sam, welcome back to Next. Thanks for having me. First of all, why don't you explain how this project, Northern Pass, would impact New England's overall energy mix? 
Well, a thousand megawatts uh, running at ninety percent capacity factor, which is what they think it's going to it's going to be operating at, is a big deal. I mean, it's roughly the same amount of energy that you would get from a large nuclear power station, and it's you know nearly twenty percent of uh, all of the annual electricity used in the state of Massachusetts. So it's it's uh, you know it's a big source, but you have to keep it in context of the overall use, which is to say. Uh, you know, all of New England on a peak day will be using as much as, you know, 30 or 29 gigawatts. Uh, so this is about one thirtieth of what of what all of New England would use on a really hot summer day with air conditioners blasting. You mentioned Massachusetts and, and the state of Massachusetts is really key to whether or not this plan gets built or not. Yeah, so so Massachusetts and uh, its utilities have designed this uh, procurement process where they would like to they would like to get uh, it's roughly twelve hundred megawatts of clean energy uh, into their into their mix, and they're willing to pay for it. Um, there, there's been some speculation from the beginning that this process is biased towards uh, Canadian hydropower, that, that only Canadian hydropower could deliver the amount of energy that they're looking for. Um, but what has changed since that, that procurement process first began is that there's now competition for the dollars that they're talking about. There's, there's three projects that have been announced. One is fairly advanced. Uh, it's being developed by a company called TDI, uh, and it's a power line that's buried under Lake Champlain uh, in Vermont, and then and then uh, follows a road. You know, is, is buried overland across a road, um, and that one's actually the farthest along. There's Northern Pass, which is going through the siting process as we speak, and also a newly announced line that was announced just this spring. That's a project by National Grid that would follow an already existing. Uh, a power line that that already goes all the way up, you know, to to far northern Canada up to the James Bay, uh, and that is widely seen as the project that is probably going to be the cheapest. However, they've got a lot of catching up to do. So even though there's probably a lot of people and a lot of money behind this Northern Pass project, it seems to me, Sam, from what you're saying and what Nancy was saying, this is probably the most complicated, the most fraught, the one with the most opposition. So does it stand a chance? That is a very good question. That is the question that people here in New Hampshire have been asking themselves for five years. Um, you know, I think that we're just going to have to wait and see what the process yields. And and it's a process that's going to actually finally come to a conclusion this fall. Uh, there, We're in the midst of hearings before New Hampshire regulators as we speak. Uh, the, the hearings are, are they're long, they're drawn out, uh, and they're going to continue all the way through July. We're expecting a, dis- a decision in September, but I'm already hearing rumblings from the people involved that that decision is likely to be delayed by a month, maybe even two months. So we're talking October or November, perhaps. Um, of course, that is speculation at this point, but but it is it is fair to say that this is one of the most uh, complex and one of the most long drawn out energy projects that has ever been proposed in certainly in the state of New Hampshire, if not all of New England. You watch this stuff really closely, and there's always been this battle about what renewable energy really is. There's there's wind and there's solar, and both of those things are expensive, but they they certainly are are renewable. Then there's a question about hydropower and whether or not that should be part of this mix. What do you know about the sustainability or the, we'll say, cleanliness of hydropower coming down from Quebec? 
Well, it's, it has been a really interesting thing to watch uh, the the evolution of what it means to be an environmentalist here in America, because we can actually think back to the, the battle between Gifford Pinchot and, and John Muir uh, over the Hex Hetchy Dam, which was the, you know, this is the beginning of environmentalism, where you had people opposing the construction of a dam. Um, so, so hydropower has a long and fraught history with environmentalists because it does have very serious local impacts on, on the natural environment. You're basically taking a river ecosystem and turning it into a lake. Um, and and that is what uh, that's what we're talking about. I mean, and the 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 rivers that have been dammed in in question here are up in far northern Canada. Um, the Hydro Quebec has sixty two dams uh, and and you know tens of gigawatts of power up there. And you know some of these projects are are simply astonishing. There's the James Bay project, which was completed in the seventies by itself on a day like today can power all of New England. Um, so, and the scale is simply astonishing. We're talking about reservoirs that are that flood uh, flood areas the size of New Hampshire, and so the scale is really difficult to to comprehend. And it has had very uh, profound impacts on the traditional way of life of largely First Nations people uh, who who you know subsisted through hunting and gathering there for for many generations and now are dealing with a very changed environment. Meanwhile, there's a clean energy source, especially in northern Maine. It's wind power. There's been a lot of turbines built recently. And up until not too terribly long ago, people thought that they could make money doing this. But as we heard earlier from Fred Bever reporting on our show, Sam, that that lack of transmission capacity, the, the lack of an ability to get that electricity from a place where it's windy and you can build these things to the people who actually need it, that's the bottleneck. Is that one of the problems here is that, you know, if you build a, a northern pass, you're going to be able to get this hydropower straight down here. It's it's maybe fraught with some environmental problems. Meanwhile, the wind industry has no real way to, to flourish and to make energy for people in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Well, what's really interesting here is that this is one of the the sources that regulators have said, well, you know, wind could bid into this clean energy request for proposals uh, just as easily as hydro. But when you're talking about making something that's cost effective, you're going to have to build the same amount of transmission capacity to get that wind down to to southern New England as you would to to, uh, get hydro to southern New England, except wind is only blowing part of the time, whereas you can fill a line with hydro, you know, 90 percent of the time. Um, so the 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 cost cost equation gets very complicated when when you're talking about getting wind to market. So indeed, uh, the the just the the sheer quantity of the surplus power that Hydro Quebec has to give away is what has drawn New England energy experts to this source. Uh, and and you know, then that's why we're talking about this. A last question for you, Sam. A lot of the opposition in New Hampshire to Northern Pass does it come from the the proposal itself, or does it come from the fact that New Hampshire residents are basically looking at a at a really big project that might impact their town or someplace that they know and love, and that the energy is really not meant for them. It's it's meant for people in other states. You know, that is an interesting question. I think that the route that the Northern Pass uh, is being built or proposed to be built along 
is, in fact, the problem. Because when you look at the response to the national grid line, which would be built uh, along next to this existing transmission line, which is called the phase two line, for those who <laughs> like the jargon like I do, <laughs> the, the response to this national grid proposal has been so muted in comparison to the response to the Northern Pass. I mean, when Northern Pass was first proposed, uh, you know, the governor came out with ever with, well, at the time, Public Service of New Hampshire, now Eversource, and made this grand announcement. It was supposed to be a jobs program, economic stimulus, and the, the backlash was immediate. And you contrast that to this national grid proposal, which came out this spring, and we've heard basically not a peep from the towns along that route. So I do think the route is the problem. Sam Evans-Brown, thanks so much for filling us in. I know you love talking about this stuff, so I, I really appreciate you taking our call. Yeah, come back anytime. <laughs> thanks, Sam. Thank you. Coming up, are communities along the Connecticut River paying for New York's pollution in Long Island Sound? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Vermont wastewater plants are waiting to hear about new nitrogen regulations from the Environmental Protection Agency. As we heard on last week's program, in salt water, too much nitrogen can be deadly to fish and plants. By the 1980s, it had become a big problem in Long Island Sound, and the EPA started closely monitoring nitrogen levels there. By 2001, the agency had set new nitrogen limitations for the wastewater treatment plants that are on the Sound in the states of New York and Connecticut. But now EPA is turning its attention to the wastewater treatment plants that are miles from the Sound on its largest tributary, the Connecticut River. And as New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman reports, those plants are wondering if this is their problem to solve. In the fresh water of the Connecticut River, nitrogen is not a problem. So in the 1970s, when the Clean Water Act prompted the construction of wastewater plants up and down the river, they weren't built to filter out nitrogen. Now, retrofitting a plant to remove nitrogen can be an adjustment of a dial or a major rebuilding of a system. In the case of the plant that serves Springfield, Massachusetts, and six other towns, increased nitrogen removal will be a huge undertaking. The reality is is that municipalities are being forced to accommodate nitrogen, and it's on our shoulders, and it's costing a lot of money. Josh Schimmel, executive director of New England's second largest wastewater treatment plant, wants proof that nitrogen is actually going from his plant on the banks of the Connecticut River into Long Island Sound. You know, it's a color-coded map. A color printout of a map of Long Island Sound is on Schimmel's desk. In the picture where the Connecticut enters the Sound, it's blue and looking pretty healthy. But near New York City, the water's all red. That's where there's a bad case of hypoxia, not enough oxygen for wildlife prompted by nitrogen. When you look at it, it doesn't make any sense that communities along the Connecticut River are going to be spending millions of dollars to deal with a nitrogen issue when you see that the issue really is primarily based upon the Hudson and East Rivers uh, in the urban areas of New York City. Looking at the map, Schimmel wonders why New York City's hypoxia problem is his to solve. He calls the EPA's nitrogen data pseudoscience. EPA officials said in an email that the agency always, quote, seeks out and uses the best and most relevant data to make regulatory decisions. 
but more data are needed. What we basically have are instruments in here that are measuring the stage of the river. The but United the States Geological Survey is gathering data here are, at a stream gauge located in the river near Windsor, Connecticut, just past the Massachusetts border. USGS hydrologist John Mullaney says to figure out how much nitrogen is in the river, you need to spend years measuring its water flow because land use continually changes and so does climate. One of the things that affects our nitrogen loads here for the Connecticut River, for instance, is nitrogen that comes in rainfall. It comes from emissions from coal-burning power plants, automobiles, all throughout the region. And drought, heat, and cold all impact data. And around the tidal parts of the river, south of this point? It's fresh water. But interestingly enough, the, when the tide is coming in, the river flows upstream. So in a sense, when you're trying to count that nitrogen, you don't want to count it twice because it's going to go by once and then it might go back upstream again before it goes down again. So from what the EPA, the USGS, and others know, could nitrogen that comes all the way down from Vermont really make it into the Long Island Sound? Yes. But... Septic tanks, farm field runoff, the atmospheric conditions in total add up to a higher load of nitrogen than from wastewater treatment plants. And fair or not, says Beth Card, the reality is treated wastewater is measurable and easiest to control because of state and federal regulations. Card is a deputy commissioner at the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. You know, we also have to remember that we're asking for investment to protect a resource that a lot of folks who live the upper watershed will never see or never enjoy. The Connecticut River is not impaired by nitrogen, Card says. But that doesn't mean Massachusetts and other states get to ignore the problem. But Card does want to make sure the EPA is approaching any new regulations with the best information possible. The state is stepping up in the sense that we are, are working very actively to make sure that all of the partners have a voice in the process. Before things are finalized, Card says, and that means before EPA decides how much nitrogen will be allowed in treated wastewater. Those partners, she mentions, they include plant managers, city leaders, and activists like Andy Fisk, the executive director of the Connecticut River Conservancy. He says wastewater plants are not off base with the concern they're doing more than their fair share. Communities are looking at the ways they can develop so that they don't increase the amount of water going into their wastewater treatment plant, which may be at capacity, or treating things at the local site level so that it doesn't cause a problem when it runs off. There are other solutions to this problem, like changing the way parking lots are built and establishing more oyster beds to absorb nitrogen. Fisk says it's a little late in the game for a conversation about nitrogen limits. The talk should have started 20 years ago. Now it's begun with a fight, he says, about EPA data and about how Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Vermont residents will have to foot the bill to clean up Long Island Sound. That's Jill Kaufman reporting. Hugging the shoreline of Long Island Sound is the nation's busiest rail corridor. The Amtrak trains that serve the Northeast get people from Boston to New York and beyond. But the shoreline communities that those trains pass through, well, they want faster, reliable train service that also stops at their local train stations, too. A proposed federal plan for high-speed rail that we heard about on our show would skip many towns and cities along that path while creating some controversial new infrastructure in those towns. The Northeast Corridor Future Plan would build a bypass cutting through historic parts of Rhode Island and Connecticut. Cassandra Bassler reports that some in the port city of New London, Connecticut, worry that the bypass would decimate the city's budget and hold back its revitalization. A small white corner store called Lee's Oriental Market stands in the shadow of Interstate 95, just north of downtown New London. 498. 
Robert Lee bought the store in the 1980s, just after a new span of highway bridge was built over the Thames River and through this neighborhood, historic Hodges Square Village. It kind of turned to a ghost town after a while. So we don't want that to happen again. We're revitalizing this neighborhood. Lee's working with the Village Association to help fix up houses and install bike lanes to draw more students from nearby colleges. Now he worries that a proposed rail bypass along the highway will hurt investment here. Even just having a line drawn in on a map saying that there's going to be a high-speed rail, even though it's going to take 10, 20 years to build it, I think that it'll actually harm this neighborhood because it'll actually lower the values of the properties that are along that line. That will affect a lot of people, but the end, I think, justifies the means. That's Tessie Baker. She's a customer of Lee's. Baker says she likes that the new rail could hit speeds faster than 200 miles an hour. I take the train all the time to Virginia, and um, that's exciting to me because it will be faster. I don't really know the specifics or anything like that, but uh, anything that's faster is always better. There's a reason Baker doesn't know specifics about the high-speed rail. Critics say the Federal Railroad Administration failed to inform residents about the bypass that could go through their towns. We're not getting detailed information from the FRA. That's Tim Hanser. He's with the Business Improvement District for downtown New London. Hanser says FRA maps draw the bypass through the city's only commercial corridor. And any property in this tiny city is important because it's only about five square miles as it is and half of that land is not taxable. The map in front of Hanser also shows a proposed station in Groton, a rural area nearby. So high-speed trains would never stop in New London. It seems like all, all this part of the state's being asked to do is to kind of bear the brunt of, of a construction project with no benefits. I mean, we're really, we're getting no improvement in service, yet we're, we're losing land and we're losing, you know, we're losing the possibility of people stopping here. So definitely a negative impact. Faster travel could still be a positive for some. The FRA says bypassing New London would save about 30 minutes between New York and Boston. Hanser thinks it could be closer to 15 minutes. If that's the case, he's not sure it's worth the cost. Just this bypass is 10 to $15 billion. So you're talking about a billion dollars a minute. Comparatively, Hanser says upgrading tracks and fixing rail bridges could help trains run faster, and it would drop people near the growing number of cafes and shops near New London's downtown Union Station. Matt Roy stands on the train platform. He lives in New York City and takes Amtrak more than two and a half hours to visit family in northeastern Connecticut. The only thing that makes the commute really difficult besides the slow speed is, is the reliability of the train sometimes. Uh, twice I've been on trains where the engines have failed and we've had to sit there and wait, get pulled back into the station in New Haven. Roy thinks it's most important to invest in reliable train service. And he's not alone. Just up the road from the train station, Mayor Michael Passero preps for a budget meeting at City Hall. Passero says the high-speed rail bypass raises concerns about future budgets. Now he worries the federal government could seize precious property for the high-speed rail line. This is going to really suppress economic development if people are looking 20 or 30 years down the line and looking at a whole section of New London and believing that that's going to end up being taken by eminent domain. This city is home to Kelo versus New London, one of the biggest eminent domain cases in history, went all the way to the Supreme Court in 2005. New London condemned people's homes for an economic development project that never came to be. This time, Passero hopes the FRA will come up with a plan to benefit New London's downtown station. Our elected officials really have to work hard to overcome the obstacles to do that for us, but it's time. New London's got a future. The train station's important to it. 
The official blueprint for the future of rail in the Northeast Corridor will be outlined in the FRA's Record of Decision. Brian Rada with the FRA announced at a regional planning meeting on the other end of the state that the decision isn't set in stone. The actual selection in the Record of Decision is really going to be focused on the vision of where we'd like to go, but there's still many constraints, such as funding constraints and just having actual funding available. RADA says the FRA is talking with states and is considering more than 8,000 public comments that have poured in since the initial proposal in December 2016. Most comments show people prioritizing improvements on existing railroads. That report from Cassandra Bassler of WSHU. Back in August of 2016, President Obama signed an executive order creating a national monument in Maine's North Woods. As we reported here, that signature created the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument, on about 87,000 acres of wilderness east of Baxter State Park. Now that monument is one of 27 under review by the Trump administration. Maine's Republican Governor Paul LePage says the monument and its potential to become a national park poses a real threat to Maine's forest products industry. Maine Public Radio's A.J. Higgins traveled to the nearby town of Millinocket recently where he found some monument supporters, including local businesses, who are fighting back. Good morning, Northwood Real Estate. Well, good morning. Dan Cochran says that a year ago, hours would sometimes pass before the phone would ring at his Northwoods Real Estate Company in Millinocket. But that was before President Obama accepted more than 87,000 acres from Burt's Bees philanthropist Roxanne Quimby as a national monument to be administered by the U.S. National Park Service. Now Cochran says the phone rings more, and he's had to hire three people to keep up with the real estate inquiries. When the National Monument was designated, uh, everything changed. Instead of us calling them, they were calling us. Within two weeks, we started getting calls from uh, brokers representing national retailers interested in locating in this area. But Republicans in Washington, eager to undo some of the Obama legacy, continue to push. And on a trip to the nation's capital two weeks ago, Governor LePage testified against the monument before the Federal Land Subcommittee of the House Natural Resources Committee. In his remarks, LePage said that the tourism industry in Maine is largely confined to the south. The growth of the state of Maine is on the coast, and between May 31st and Labor Day, we will have 40 million visitors, but they will be to the coast. Very few are going to be in the Mosquito area. For some residents of Millinocket, the governor's message to Congress fell flat. Monument supporters have been celebrating an uptick in economic activity, something that many business owners say they haven't seen since the former Great Northern Paper Company shut its doors nine years ago. I was appalled, appalled to hear our governor describe the beautiful Katahdin region as a mosquito area. He had nothing good to say about the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. Katahdin Area Chamber of Commerce President Gail Fanjoy says LePage's comments about the Millinocket area before a national audience shocked the chamber's members. And it prompted local business owners to hold a press conference to let Maine and the rest of the nation know that many former opponents of the monument are now supporters and that the once divided communities in the area are coming together. Eight months after the establishment of the monument, the region has come together and is healing. It is ready to move forward to a new and prosperous future. The efforts of the federal and state government are counterproductive to our progress. 
John Ellis, whose family operates two markets in the region, is one local resident whose position on the monument has evolved. Ellis's family lost its camp when Quimby purchased the land that would ultimately be given to the National Park Service. He says he understands how anyone in the area who had to forfeit a place they loved had a right to be bitter about the monument, but Ellis says that before he died, his late father urged his sons to resist those ill feelings. I remember distinctly he said, boys, it's time to move on. It's time to move forward and embrace uh, this opportunity for our community and, and to go forward. We need to move beyond the past. Ellis and Dan Corcoran acknowledge that there is still some entrenched opposition to the monument proposal. They see it as an impediment to the future return of industry and to traditional recreation uses such as hunting, fishing, and snowmobiling. But opponents in Millinocket seem to be keeping a low profile as the new Federal Review of the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument gets underway. One man who had posted a no-park sign on his lawn declined to talk about his position. Millinocket native Robert Frost, who hangs a pro-monument banner on his front porch, says opponents tend to keep to themselves. It's a nitpick group. But people get together over coffee at the house or a restaurant or something, they'll talk about it. This community here, it's hard to change, and they still think in the back of their minds that that mill's going to come back, and it's not. John Hafford believes that as more time passes, the monument's critics will begin to see the benefits of the monument. Hafford and his wife, Jessica Massey, run Design Lab, a Millinocket graphic design and marketing firm that is in the forefront of the pro-monument movement. Is people just want to move on, you know, and they know, they've seen the traffic that happened last fall, they, they see the investment that's happening, they see houses being bought up in the, in the region everywhere, and, and, and people get it. And also they see a bunch of people trying to be positive, and you know, that's infectious. That's A.J. Higgins with Maine Public Radio reporting. We're currently about two weeks into the 60-day public comment period for review of Katahdin Woods and other monuments. If you'd like to read some of the comments or even submit your own, we've got a link right on our website. It's nextnewengland.org. Coming up, the magazine that transports readers to a New England of their sweet imaginings. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. Atlantic salmon were once plentiful in the rivers of New England, but they've since all but disappeared. Salmon grow up in fresh water, but then they go out to the ocean and they return inland to spawn The many dams on our rivers and streams and changing oceanic conditions have destroyed river return rates for salmon. So to combat that, New England has aggressively stocked hatchery-raised salmon in rivers for a long time, decades now. But low return counts and budget cutbacks have eliminated many of those programs. In the state of Connecticut, there's still a salmon stocking program, and although it's much smaller than it once was, young hatchery-raised salmon, or fry as they're called, are raised and stocked in portions of the state. WNPR's Patrick Scahill recently met up with some fish stalkers on the Farmington River and brings us this audio postcard. <laughs> Grab a bucket. We'll go down and we'll talk about assignments. Bruce Williams, my job title is uh, fisheries technician. We've got three buckets going in now, and there's probably close to 3,000 fish per bucket. 
So what we don't want to do is just go down the river and dump 3,000 fish in one spot. Salmon are adapted, even at this small size, to living in fast running water. So we're looking for water less than knee deep. We're looking for areas of moderately fast current. And Bill, you had the misfortune of, of bringing chest waders today. Yes, I did. So I'm going to send you uh, down. Bill Bless, B-L-E-S-S. A current like this, they just get swept down. So stuff closer to shore with rocks. And then I kind of release them in 10, 15, 20. And then I replenish the water in the bucket. They usually go right from the bottom and then they'll get in the crevices and, and they'll be kind of uh, stationary. They won't move around a lot. Any of the problems with Atlantic salmon restoration have not been in the freshwater phase. It's oceanic survival. But overall, about two to five percent of the fry that we stock uh, go out to sea as six or eight inch long fish. That postcard comes from Patrick Scahill, reporting from Connecticut's Farmington River. If you've ever run a Google search on, say, best clam chowder in Rhode Island or best New England beaches, chances are you've come across NewEngland.com, the website of Yankee Magazine. Yankee's tagline is New England's Magazine, and the periodical turns 82 this year. With summer just around the corner, we thought it'd be a good time to check in with Yankee's editor, Mel Allen. Mel says the publication isn't just about travel and tourism. Welcome to Next, Mel. Really glad to be here, John. We love to know the historical background of some of the great institutions of New England. So why don't you tell us the, the story of Yankee Magazine? How did it get started? Well, in 1935, Mr. Sagendorf, who was a, a Harvard grad, Rob Sagendorf, he came to Dublin where this was a, a, a very well-known art colony. And Mark Twain used to summer here, many artists and so on. And in a little hexagon shack, which still stands, he had one typewriter, he had a wood stove, he had a desk. He put out the very first issue of Yankee Magazine in September 1935. I believe the story goes we had six subscribers to begin with. And this was, this was in the midst of the Depression, you know, like seven or six years before World War, World War II. And he believed really passionately that what he called the Yankee traditions he actually wrote that way. He thought they were dying out, <clears throat> and the small towns, the, the spirit of, of New England, whatever that meant to him, he felt that was being eroded by what he called mass commercialism, which is interesting, thinking back to that period of time that he would have had that feeling. And he started this little magazine that was going to keep the traditions alive of what he called the Yankee, whatever that means to, to people, the Yankee spirit. When you talk about those Yankee traditions that animated the magazine at the start, do you have a way that you express what that means to young staffers or freelancers or reporters who are working for you now? I mean, how do you how do you describe what a Yankee magazine story is to them? Well, the first thing is a sense of place. Everything starts with place. Every single issue needs to be just imbued with place. And there is this, this, this feeling out there, John, that New England is homogeneous. But I will tell people, you know, New England is cantankerous, it's industrious, it's fiercely independent, it's innovative, it's complex, it's contradictory, it's frugal, it's eccentric, it's emotionally reserved, it's unpretentious, but it's not homogeneous. I tell people New England is Harvard University, 
but then I said, do you know that also New England has some of the last one-room island schoolhouses in the country? New England is Boston, and it's Providence, and it's Portland, and it's Hartford. And New England is also these unorganized territories in Maine, which are just these wild lands. And so the, the, the biggest thing I would tell anyone who wanted to write for Yankee and is all this is New England, and we have to capture some of this in every single issue. So there's this historical way that we've organized ourselves in these six states pre-colonially. But I guess I'm wondering if you feel like there's a cohesiveness that keeps these six states as New England today with all the changes, all the things that you just enumerated. Do you think that there's a, a sense that New England is pulling apart or that New England is always something that's cohered together in some way? That's really that's really a good question. I think there are some things that will always be New England. You know, when when you go anywhere in the world and you say, I am from New England, I think people will get a certain feel for what that means, which is going to be unlike most other regions in the in the country. And look, we can't escape New England has three of the whitest states in the country. Vermont, Maine, and New Hampshire. And any list you see of the most you know, the highest percentage of what's considered, you know, white there they are. And yet we have in Connecticut, you have parts of Hartford where I know Spanish is spoken. You have great West Indian populations. We have great clusters of Cambodians who make their home in Lowell. We have thousands of Somali refugees who started new lives in Lewiston, Maine. And they're all making their way as New Englanders. So this is still being played out as we speak. You know, I wanted to ask you about the the whiteness of New England. It's something that we've covered on our our show a little bit. You published a a sympathetic feature about some Somali immigrants, uh, the community that's grown up in Lewiston, Maine, over some time uh, in one of your recent issues. March, April issue. Yeah. Yeah. And in in the current issue, you then published a couple letters to the editor in response. One of the letters was was really positive and pro-immigrant. The other reader took objection to you deciding to cover the topic, and she wrote, Yankees shouldn't do politics. I guess I'm wondering your reaction to to that and some of what you heard from people about a story about the Somali community. I received one of the the ugliest letters. I've been here almost 40 years. You know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters that have come here and emails and so on and phone calls. After that Somali story, there was a few that were really um, kind of shockingly ugly, and and they said they're they're going to cancel their subscription. And you know. We're happy to say, you know, goodbye. You know, we're probably not your magazine because we're not just a magazine for representing just the rural white part of New England. We represent place and places all of New England. At the same time, for every letter like that, we got letters for people saying thank you for recognizing that New England is changing and thank God for that because the more diversity we have in New England, the richer we all are. People write us love letters. And they write love letters, and I don't think it's really to Yankee Magazine. I think these are love letters to New England, that, and they see us as, you know, the mirror of New England. I, I'm wondering about how you feel like that mirror has changed as you cover this this changing region. It's something we we try to grapple with on our show, and also with the stations that we cover in the in the New England News Collaborative. New England is changing so fast, and I think a lot of people who pick up your magazine would probably say, look, there's a lot of pictures of beautiful foliage and white steeple churches and rocky shoreline, and and it's interspersed with stories about the Somali community in Lewiston. But 
But I think an awful lot of people would say that Yankee is is about those sorts of traditional places. How do you strike that balance when you think about making the magazine month to month as the place and the people change so rapidly over just the course of the last couple of decades? I, I have to tell you, John, every single editorial meeting we have, we meet weekly, we talk about that very, that very subject. We come out six times a year in print and six times a year on a, as a digital edition. So we have to fit as much diversity of, of topics in, the, in that issue. So we, we always will try to find, let's call it the beauty shots, you know, the, the things that people just go, ah, oh, boy, I wish I was there. In our home section, we do what makes a living in New England unique from other parts of the country. But in our feature well, where those stories are, what we try to do is have a read that would be as meaningful and as compelling as you would find any magazine anywhere. We, we, were, we were the first in the country um, to write the long form about the, the sinking of the El Faro. Um, that was in the, our November-December issue. And that story could, t- could hold its own with any reporting that was done on, on the El Faro. They will read those stories because they're happening in and around New England, but at the same time, they do want to be, they want to be transported. Because half of our readers don't live in New England, half of our readers live outside New England. They want to be taken to a place of their, of their sweet imaginings. So we have, to, we have to have both in each issue. How important are lists? In Yankee print, the only list that you're going to find is we do something called the best five, and that's the, whatever that subject matter will be, the best, five, the best five lobster rolls, the best five summer amusement parks, the best five beaches, that's in print. But on our website, newingland.com, that's where the lists are gold. Well, how do, you, how do you find these lists? I mean, how do you go out and, and do the research and say, okay, this year's top ten lobster rolls list is different than the last one you did? Well, that's a great question, but you, you, you trust the people who that makes it their business to know. So that Amy Traverso, who's our wonderful food editor, she lives, breathes, um, and dies by New England food. So this last summer, Amy took an RV with her, her husband and eight-year-old son and their new puppy, and they drove the length of Maine, and she ate, I believe she sampled nearly 30 different lobster rolls, and she ranked each lobster roll by, she had points for the roll, for the sweetness of the lobster, for, the, for how they presented it, and so on and so forth. And that, you know, became our ultimate, for, the, for this year at least, lobster roll survey, which you're going to see in the July-August <laughs> issue, which will be on the newsstands um, before you know it. Mel Allen, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. John, thank you very much. By the way, since we're talking about lobster rolls there and the best ones across New England, go to nextnewengland.org. You can find my conversation about whether Maine or Connecticut lobster rolls are the best. I've got my own ideas. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Andrew Perello. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.